Welcome to Real Estate Investor Secrets, the podcast that reveals the blueprint to building a $1 million real estate portfolio through passive investing. I'm your host, Ryan Ng, sharing the exact blueprint that we use to go from a $240,000 fourplex to managing over $200 million in multifamily real estate assets. Each week, we'll explore commercial real estate secrets to accelerate your wealth building journey. Our goal is financial freedom and abundance for you through real estate investing. Join us to uncover strategies, insights, and hidden gems for exponential wealth growth. Learn from successful investors who achieved independence through passive investing. Now, whether you're starting out or experienced, this podcast delivers actionable insights and valuable resources for your real estate portfolio. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Real Estate Investor Secrets and tap into seasoned investors' wisdom. And together, we'll unlock real estate investing secrets for a future of freedom and abundance. Welcome, everybody. Uh, I just want to say right out the gate, thank you guys for being here and for investing in yourselves and uh, and acquiring knowledge. I don't really talk about this enough, but um, but there's a direct correlation between knowledge and wisdom and wealth. I don't know if any of you are, are Bible readers, but I am. And uh, if you remember, there was Solomon who was asked by God, he said, what is one thing that you want to give you a, you know, you know, what is one gift that you want? And Solomon said, I want wisdom. And then Solomon went on to become the wealthiest man on earth. So there is this direct correlation between seeking wisdom and knowledge. We've had, and we've been blessed with many, many years of real estate experience, specifically in the apartment industry. Um, and we know the, the nuts and bolts of how it all works. But very specifically, one of the things that we've been blessed with, in addition to our experience that I want to share with you guys today, is we've had some of the most savvy investors, some of the most uh, high net worth investors and experienced investors. Uh, we've had, you know, the original investor in BMW invest with us. We've got family offices with 50 million plus in liquid net worth that um, they have gotten where they are through real estate investing. So the questions that they ask, we consider very important because we like to see how they look at deals, which got them to where they are. And so what I want to give you guys is just like, you know, we, we've seen a commonality in all of our our highest net worth and our most sa uh, savvy investors. We've seen a commonality in some of the questions that they ask. And so um, we put all those together and we're about to share them with you so that you could see how the smartest investors look at these deals. So I'm going to try to go through it as quick as possible. This is like <laughs> generations of knowledge compacted down into 13 questions, uh, compacted down into a less than an hour crash course. So I'm going to do my best. If you've got a calculator, that might be helpful when we go through some of the valuations. And uh, as well, you can take any screenshots, feel free to you know write down any notes or whatever. So, all right, let's get into it. Question number one, do you have a performa investment packet? That's what the first you should ask. This shows that if you're looking at someone who's providing a uh, apartment investment, they, they're called sponsors, general partners, operators. Um, if they don't have projections or a business plan or financials, 
then they really haven't done their due diligence. And having a packet shows that they've done a level of due diligence and uh, and that they've got their stuff together. So you you want to avoid the the brother in law or you know the the guy that you met at the party and he says I have a great investment. And you asked him to see you know, business plan or numbers, and he doesn't have anything together, everything's on the back of a napkin. <laughs> That's what you want to avoid. So a good pro forma looks something like this. You know, you got a little bit about the project. You've got, you know, an overview. You've got an executive summary of the business plan. It's going to show you location, your acquisition summary, the sources and uses of the money. T12s projected all the way out to however many years the project is for. Uh, it's going to give you some key numbers like your average cash on cash return, your average IRR, what year you can expect to refi or dispose of the property. It should be able to give you both conservative projections and target model projections and a little bit about some of the people that are involved in the project. So that's what you know a, a good investment packet has. It's basically a business plan and somebody that you're going to invest $100,000 or more, or maybe it's $50,000 or more, depending on the type of investment, you want to make sure that they've got a business plan together. And then it allows you to ask specific questions about the investment. So you can you can start asking, all right, what's your projected exit cap rate? What are you projecting increasing rents by year to year? And that business plan should be a platform for you to begin asking those questions. So question number two, uh, you want to know how the deal is structured. You want to know specific terms of the deal and what the equity splits are. So to give you an example in, 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 in broad terms is most of these deals, you have a general partner. They're also known as a sponsor or an operator. Um, they're the ones that are putting the deal together and executing on the deal. And then you have a limited partner. That's you. That's the passive income investor. You're not in there hiring property managers. You're not qualifying leases or fixing plumbing or, or doing any, or preparing financials or K-1s. This is strictly a passive income investment where you put your head on the pillow and you see money coming in while you sleep, You know the, the mailbox money. That's where you want to be if you want to be in the most passive of real estate investments, you want to be in the limited partner position. Um, so what are the typical structures? What are the equity splits? And we see everything from 70, 30, you know, 70% to the general partner and 30% to the limited partner uh, to 50, 50, where it's, you know, split even. And then there's 35, 65, where it's 35% to the general partner and 65% to the limited partner or 20% to the general partner and 80% to the limited partner. Um, I put PREF there. I'm going to go into PREF in a second. Um, to give you an idea how we structure our deals, we do 20-80, 20% goes to us, 80% goes to the investor, and we do an 8% preferred return. Now, when you're investing in apartment deals, to make sure that everybody's interests are aligned you want to make sure that there's a preferred return in the deal. So here's here's what a preferred return is. When this exists in the deal, it lets you know that the interest between the LP and the GP is aligned because the GP doesn't make a true split until the LP has been paid back. So basically what it is, is if you invest $100,000 and the preferred return is 10%, that means that you're going to get 10% on your money 
10% of $100,000 is $10,000 per year. You're going to get $10,000 per year until your initial $100,000 is paid back. Well, how is that paid back? It's paid back through a refinance. So if the operator goes in and increases the value of the apartment, say they bought the apartment for $5 million, they increased it to $10 million, they can take out a loan at 80%. That means they've got $3 million that they can now use to pay off the original investment amount. Okay, so that's what a lot of apartment operators do is they go into something where they can increase the value and then get a loan on the higher value and pay back the investors their original capital. So their goal is to increase the value as soon as possible via renovations or updates or better management, uh, upgrading the apartments, raising the rents or eliminating expenses. There's a lot of ways to increase the overall value of an apartment. So the general partner's goal is to renovate and increase value and refi and sell as soon as possible so they can eliminate that pref and get a true split. So here's a very real example. Say you invested $100,000 and the preferred return was 10%. And then after that, it was split 50-50. And there is $15,000 of cash flow that's going to be distributed. Just for the sake of understanding the math on this, say you were the only LP in the deal, you're the only investor in the deal, right? Because we don't want to get into pro rata shares and all that just to understand it. So you're the only investor at 100,000 and there's $15,000 to distribute. In that 50-50 split, the general partner, if it was without a pref, they would get 7,500 and you would get 7,500. However, since the LP receives a preferred return, the LP is going to first get $10,000. That's 10% on the $100,000 they invested. They're getting that per year. After the $10,000 is paid first to the investor, the remaining $5,000 is then split 50-50, $2,500 to the LP and $2,500 to the GP. So the GP is looking at this and saying, all right, we I made $15,000 on this property. He's got to get the give the investor $12,500 and he's going to make $2,500. Only after the LP is paid back through a refinance or some other capital event, that $100,000, only after that, he can split it 50-50 to where he makes $7,500 and the LP makes $7,500. Again, this is just an example with some splits that I see out there. One of our um, original mentors with InvestRes and Avesta, they used to do a 50-50 and a 10% preferred return. We do a, a 20-80 with 20 going to us and 80 going to the investors with an 8% preferred return. So there's different structures. And, and you really, if you're investing in these deals, you want to find out what that structure is and make sure that the interests are aligned. And the best way to make sure they're aligned is with a preferred return. All right. Question number three is how long is this deal and when do the capital events take place? So a typical deal lasts for three to 10 years with apartments, depending on the sponsor's strategy. Uh, typical capital events, that's where you refinance. Those are typically between two years and four years, some happening sooner. For example, we've got, it's a little different. We bought a 167 unit apartment, but we're selling them individually as condos. So those condo sales are a capital event. So we were projecting being able to pay off the capital in like year two or three. Um, we're actually getting closer to the year one on that particular project. So it just depends on the project and, and what the capital event is. 
uh, but they're typical return of capital between two and four years. Our deals are typically three years on development and seven years on long-term holds. So development is things like arbitrage, like we're doing a hotel to apartment conversion or a apartment to condo conversion where we're selling them individually or a development deal is like you're just building ground up apartments. If you've already got cash flow and it's it's something where you can just increase the value, you really want something at the seven-year mark, near the seven-year mark, because then you have the benefit of doing depreciation, which we're, you know, it's it's called a cost seg depreciation, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, deals with earlier capital events are going to have an IRR, which brings us uh, to the next following questions about equity multiple and IRR. Our best investors, they only really look at these two things. They look at what's the IRR and what's the, the equity multiple. What an equity multiple is going to show you is how much your investment will multiply by. So for example, if it's a 2x deal, that means your money is going to be multiplied by two. Uh, simply put, if you invested 100,000 by project end, you will have 200,000. Common equity multiple ranges that we see out there and that we're finding uh, range between 1.2, meaning if you invest 100,000, you get 120,000 back, and 3x. So if you invest 100,000, you get $300,000 back. It just depends on how much value the GP can add to the deal. Now, you really want to look at equity multiple alongside IRR. And IRR is going to tell you how fast that money is going to come back. So if you see a deal that's a 2x multiple, well, Anybody can double your money in 10 years or 20 years, you know, but if you've got something that's doubling your money in two to three years, then that's going to be a higher IRR. So that's what the IRR tells you. It tells you how fast that equity multiple happens. It doesn't just calculate the cash on cash, but it's also the time value of that money. If you look on YouTube, what IRR is, you're not going to get anything shorter than like a seven to 10 minute explanation. But in, in general, an easy way to understand, it's basically taking your normal return on money and adding a time value to it. And it's with the concept that investors consider that money now is more valuable than money later. So your average IRRs that GPs try to achieve are between 12% to 18%. They can get a lot higher. They can get to 40%. They can get to 60%. For projects that we do, because we are doing a combination of arbitrage and value add, we aim for projects where we can achieve over 20% IRR with a lot of our projects achieving over 25% IRR. So that's what IRR is. So if you're looking at a deal, so here's, for example, we have a fund of 474 units and each project has a different projected IRR and equity multiple. So this one is between 1.49 and 1.7 equity multiple with a projected IRR of 25% to 34%. This one is a longer hold. This one's term is three years. This one is, this is actually a typo. The term is uh, seven years. Um, so this one is gonna be a little lower IRR. And the reason is because it's a seven year hold and we're looking to get some depreciation benefits for our investors for taxes. So that equity multiple is going to be 1.58 to 1.9. On this particular deal, it's a shorter term. It's a three-year hold. So the IRR is going to go up from 37 to 49% targeted. And the equity multiples are going to be between 2 and 2.42. So on 100,000, you can make 201,000 to 242,000. 
And here's another hotel to apartment conversion where the term is a lot shorter, two years. And because the term is shorter, the IRR is higher, 39 to 59%. Again, this IRR is showing you the time value of that money coming back to you, of that equity multiple coming back to you. Okay, so that just kind of gives you an example of the spread of how the length of the term that you're holding the property combined with the equity multiple, combined with the IRR, that's what our most experienced investors look at. All right, so how to see equity multiple with IRR. So say the equity multiple is 2X, anybody can double your money within 10 to 20 years. The IRR tells you how fast that money doubles. So for example, 2X with a 10% IRR shows you that that money won't be doubled for you know about a decade. But a 2X with a 25% IRR shows you the money can be doubled within four years. All right, so those are two major factors that our most sophisticated and savvy investors look at is that equity multiple and the IRR. All right, the next big question is who is on the team? I find it interesting. We've been doing this long enough and, and we've we've got over $50 million worth invested with us. And there's a big difference between the guy who invests say 50,000 and the guy investing over a million. And the guy who invests, and there's nothing wrong with either approach, but there is definitely uh, different mind frames. So the guy invests 50,000, he's gonna go through this and he's gonna ask me a question on every single one of these line items between the contract services, trash removal, electric, water and sewer, management fee. And he's gonna get into the weeds on the projections, which is fine. I mean, that's <clears throat> that's a comfort level for someone who's probably investing the first time. Uh, but what I do notice is our most sophisticated investors spend a lot of time vetting us and the team because they have to make sure that they know, like, and trust us, but not just know, like, and trust us, but they know, like, and trust the deal and our ability to uh, accomplish the deal. So they've got to know, like, and trust our ability to get the deal done. So they want to know who is the CEO and who is the COO, who are the people involved, the main guys involved. They want to know who is the financial controller because they may have to contact the financial controller about uh, tax questions or or getting reports or, or other things. Another big question they ask is about the investor relations team. How often are you creating reports? Some people create reports once a week. Some people do once a month. Some people aren't reporting once a year. We aim for somewhere between once a month and um, and you know some weekly general reports. Most of the time, we're getting them out at least once a month. Um, just so you know how the investment's doing. And you also want an investor relations person so you can call and ask questions about the investment and, and make sure you're on track. Also, the acquisitions team. If you're looking to invest in a company long-term, you wanna know what kind of deal flow are they gonna bring? How many people are on the team and how many deals are they looking at? For example, we're looking at at least four to five deals a day and we're putting an offer on at least one per week, I'd say it's more like three per week. And so you know that if you've got a lot of deal flow and you've got a lot of offers that are being made, that your that company that you're investing with has the ability to kind of cherry pick the best deals that are out there on the market because they're looking at a lot of a lot of different deals and they're making a lot of different offers. They're not just getting the first one under contract because they want to and then providing it as an investment. So you want to make sure that they've got a pretty robust acquisition team. 
we have over 20 people on our acquisition team and, and partners um, that are churning deals to us constantly. And so you want to make sure whoever you invest in has that robust acquisition team, because that means you're getting the best deals. Also, you want to know a little bit about the analyst. Who is the analyst? And uh, you want to know how they're analyzing deals. The analyst is going to help, number one, in making sure that you buy right, that you're you know, doing proper due diligence on the property. But also, you want to make sure that there's a level of asset management with an analyst capability there for the properties that you own. So you don't want to just say, hey, rents all year long. We're buying this at 800. We're going to bump it to 900. And we're just going to keep rents all year long at 900. No, you need an analyst that is looking every single week at where that particular market is. And if it's at 937 that day, then you're offering properties for lease at 937. An asset manager with an analyst combined is going to make sure that whatever you're buying, that you squeeze every last penny out of profit out of that particular asset. And then also they ask a good bit about property management. And I can tell you that most sophisticated investors prefer that you have in-house management. We originally started with third party and we quickly transitioned to just creating our own in-house property management company because you've got a lot more control over the cost and the quality of the project. So those are major questions is, you know, who is on the team and who is driving this forward and, and who's going to make sure that we are getting the most out of this asset and this investment. All right. The next question, question number seven is what is your track record of experience? Um, so questions you want to ask is, have you done these deals or is someone on your team who has, have you done a round trip in this business? They call round trip. You know, if you've bought a property refinance the property and sold the property, that's a round trip. And you want to be able to, you're, you're the person that you're investing with, you want to be able to talk to, all right, what were some of the things that you projected versus what you actually achieved on those projects? And the sponsor should be able to tell you, all right, so we actually projected this and we overhit our mark here, or we actually undershot there. And you're just looking for a little bit of their track record of success. Another good question is what is your AUM? That's assets under management. We have 200 million in assets under management. You probably don't don't want to invest with anybody with just, you know, under 10 million in assets under management. You know, if you're investing in a big project um, and you're investing $100,000 or more, you really want somebody with, um, with, with experience in the deal. You don't want to be like just trying out, you know, a new strategy with them. Uh, another thing that they all ask us is tell me about your best deal and tell me about your worst deal. And experienced investors know that most investments don't go exactly to pro forma. Some overachieve them, some underachieve them. And really what you want is that depth of experience to where someone has experienced the pain of having a deal that didn't go the way they wanted. And you want to see what lessons they learned from that. And really what you're trying to get at the end of the day is just to see how much experience they've had. Uh, if they've been in it for the best, if they've gotten through the worst. And if they've done both of those things, then uh, then that's a good sponsor to, to invest in. All right. Another question is, uh, does this provide any tax benefits? Deals that last typically five to 10 years, really that sweet spot is seven years are going to have, you want to make sure that the sponsor is doing a cost seg analysis. 
And what it is in, in real estate, the IRS says you can depreciate this asset over 27 and a half years. You take whatever the value of the asset is, and each year you can write off on your taxes that the bricks depreciated or the, the plumbing deteriorated or the roofs deteriorated. Um, it's not a real loss. It's a paper loss. And it helps you to offset your income on taxes. What a cost seg does is it takes that 27 and a half years and you get in, you get in with a company that has an expert that says, all right, well, the wallpaper is going to depreciate at a different rate than the carpets at a different rate than the plumbing and the electrical is going to depreciate this much. What they end up doing is they end up condensing 27 and a half years of depreciation down to about seven years. So give you an idea, if you were to make enough money to where the government and the IRS was going to tax you $56,000 that year. If you'd invested in one of our projects, uh, let's say Regency in Metairie is one of our projects, was a 62 unit. Um, that first year, our investors got $56,000 in paper depreciation. So on top of getting paid about eight, $10,000 that year and just distributions from the property, they also got paid $56,000 depreciation. So they no longer had to pay the IRS that $56,000 and they were able to take that money, keep it in-house and uh, use it on a vacation or on more investments or whatever else. So a lot of our, our highest net worth investors want to make sure that there's a level of cost seg that is done on the property so that they can achieve this depreciation. This doesn't work on shorter term properties that you're holding, you know, one, two, three years, you typically can't do the cost seg. But if you're holding Sweet spots about seven years, but they say five years or more. That's when it starts making sense. All right. So question nine is what is the schedule of distributions? So you want to know there's different ways of getting paid. You get paid your preferred returns. And if there's any money above those preferred returns, you're getting paid the cash flow according to your equity split. Um, and then after that, you know, if you refinance or if you sell the property, you have some sort of capital event. So is the PREF paid monthly? Is it quarterly? Is it annually? Uh, is it after stabilization? Typically on new development deals, like if you're building apartments from the ground up or you're doing an arbitrage deal, like a hotel to apartment, that uh, you don't want to um, get paid that PREF every single month because that means that the sponsor has to raise the PREF and it lowers your overall returns. You want that PREF to be paid by the rent that's coming in. And so typically on development deals um, or arbitrage deals, you're not going to get paid that PREF until you start getting rent into the property, which is fine because you know the, the deals are modeled a different way and they typically have a larger value add component and a, a larger back end payment. And then cash flow, same thing. Are you paid this monthly, quarterly, or annually, or at a capital event? And then a refi, when is this paid? When is the sale date projected? So to give you an idea, our company, Servio, we pay the preferred returns monthly. We aim to pay those monthly. Um, sometimes with cash flow, you, you might say, hey, we're going to switch to quarterly for the time being and then go back to monthly. Um, and then cash flow is typically paid quarterly or annually. And then, uh, and then refis typically happen two to four years and then sale just depends on the project. All right, question number 10, what is the difference between your stress testing model and business plan and your target plan? So on every deal, you should have conservative or stress testing model. Uh, 
where you could see what the returns would be, you know, like on, on a stress test model on this particular thing, your IRR is at 20% and your cash on cash is at 9%. On the target model, which is achievable, that IRR is a little higher, 23% and cash on cash is 12.92%. So what you want to know is the difference. If they're showing you, first of all, the question is, you know, from investors, what's the difference? Have you stress tested this? What is the minimum you, amount you need to make in order to break even? Um, but then from there, like, what is the difference? So for example, on this one, you see that the rent escalated to by 32% in year two. Well, if you know this deal, it's a value add deal. So you're like, okay, well, what justifies that rent increase? Because typically rent follows, you know, some sort of target of inflation versus what inflation has been. Inflation right now is like at 6.8%, but they target 2%, but it's, you know, probably uh, realistically conservative to say inflation is at 6% now. Let's go ahead and say that we'll escalate rent by 3%. But what justifies this jump? And your sponsor should be able to say, all right, so rents right now are at 500. We're buying it from somebody who uh, hasn't raised rents in 15 years. They're just, you know, a, a small mom and pop operator. And um, and we've got another property in the area and we've done a, a comparable market analysis of all the other properties in the area. And we know that we can raise rents to $900, $400 increase, which substantiates that 32% increase right there. So that's um, what a, a sponsor should be able to talk to. So you want to know the difference between your target model and your stress tested model. Is it just that you're you're predicting this occupancy or you're predicting a higher rent? Whatever that is, you want to know the difference. Question number 11 that we typically get is, what type of deal is this? Is this quick nickel? Is it slow dime? Is it developmental? Um, and so you've got different classes of apartments. You've got class A, which is brand new. You've got class B, which is a little older than brand new. Class C, which is typically needs some work some value add, some increase, and D. Um, in general, I would recommend staying away from D. These are typically in crime-ridden areas. Uh, there's a lot of work that needs to get done on them. The sweet spot, I think, for value add is between B and C. That's where you're going to get a deal that you could renovate um, or increase the value some sort of way, beautify the community, and increase the rents. And then class A is a separate model. That's going to be, um, it's going to be a little more speculative, but if your speculations are correct, they could be higher return, higher overall IRRs. So we'll go into these deals uh, just in general. So uh, developmental, developmental deals, that's your new construction, your arbitrage, changing, a, you know, hotels to apartments or apartments to condos. Uh, the pros are you typically have higher projected IRRs. Uh, because there's a lot of value that you're creating in a short amount of time. The cons are, is that they're more speculative. For example, if you're buying a class B apartment that already has $80,000 a month in rents coming in, you're not speculating that you can get those rents. It's already coming in. If you're doing a brand new um, apartment development, where the projections, you really have to ask a lot of questions to the sponsor about where they're coming up with their rent projections. Uh, and there's certain questions like, what are the absorption rates? That's that's going to show you how quickly units can get absorbed in an area. Like if the absorption rate is 100, that means that 
hundred units a year are being absorbed if you're putting a hundred new units on the market. So on developmental, the cons are it's more speculative and the pref is typically not paid until it's stabilized or sold. Uh, then you have your value add. This is where you are basically doing an NOI cap rate value model. The pros are that it's got great refi potential. You know, you add value, you, you increase the value like 5 million to 10 million, then you refi it out and you get your capital paid back. That's That makes a tremendous investment. Uh, and then you have tax benefits. If you're holding it for seven years, you got that depreciation, you got the cash flow from increasing those rents. Uh, you've got accelerated appreciation or forced appreciation. You, you have the ability to control how high that value goes up. Um, and it's less speculative. They already have rents. The PREF typically is paid within that, that first year or is paid monthly. The cons are is you need an operator with an experience and conservative projected targets. Um, so that is the, the main type of deals. And that's what you kind of want to know before you get into something. Is this, is this developmental or is it value add? And you know, if it's developmental, you could probably need to be patient on waiting for your returns to come in. Um, you're probably going to get higher IRRs, but you're also speculating on rents. And so you need to do a little more due diligence to make sure that those rents are achievable. And then if it's value add, then it's a little safer. Um, it's a little less speculative and you're going to have that benefit of depreciation and forced appreciation. All right. Uh, question number 12 is how scalable is the investment? Is there enough units to put a property manager on site? Uh, are there economies of scale? For example, a shared regional manager to split costs of management. Uh, what is the profit potential based on the ability to increase the value and the cap rates of the area? Let me give you guys, this is probably the, the most important thing that you guys need to know. If you've hung in for me this long, congratulations. Now we are at the, the literal gold of this entire model um, and of the entire apartment model. So for example, say you have 20 units that you can increase the, the rents by $50, or you have 300 units where you can increase the rents by $50. The formula, if you wanna write this down, the formula for valuing apartments is you take the NOI, that's the net operating income. It's essentially the profit. The only thing, it's, it's basically your rents plus any other income minus your expenses. The only expense not included is your mortgage because everybody's financing is different. So that is gonna get you your net operating income. The cap rate is what things are traded for in an area. So 6% cap rate, is saying that things are traded at a 6% cap in the area. That's what properties are selling for in the area. One thing important to remember about cap rates is the lower the cap rate, the higher the value is gonna be. And the higher the cap rate, the lower the value is gonna be. So something at a, a 20 unit in an 8% cap area is gonna be cheaper than a 20, 20 unit in a 6% cap area. All right. So just going through the math, just so you understand how easy it is to force the values up on apartments. If you've got a 20 unit where you're raising the rents by 50 bucks, $50 a month extra in rent at 20 units, and you multiply that by 12 months to give you an annual number, that's $12,000 more per year that you're making in profit. 12,000 profit divided by 6% cap rate, 
you take your calculator out, you put 12,000 divided by 0 0.06, that's going to be the value that this operator created in this apartment, which would be $200,000. All right. So if you got a 20 in it, you bump rents by $50 at a 6% cap rate, you have increased the value by $200,000. So say you've got a 300 unit with $50 rent bumps at a 6% cap rate. At $50 a month extra at 300 units times 12 months, that equals $180,000 additional profit per year. $180,000 profit divided by 6% cap rate equals a value increase of $3 million. I want to show you guys this so you understand the scalability of apartments. That's why some of our investors, even though it might only take $100,000 to invest in the 20 unit, and it's only $100,000 to invest in 300 unit. You just have a lot more scalability and profit potential increase in the uh, higher unit count with the higher diversification. That's how the forced value of appreciation of apartments work. And, and, uh, and, and those are things that our most experienced investors understand. The next, and probably, you know, put question number 13, you could easily put this as question number one, is location. Um, there are certain investors that just stay away from certain locations because they're looking for yield. They're not investing in New York or California. They're investing in the Southeast because they want something with more of a yield, something with a, with a preferred return. But one of the most important questions that you could ask that eliminates most of your risk in an investment is, is this in an area of positive migration? Are more people coming to this area than are leaving the area? And what are the population projections? For example, we've got a deal in Wilmington. And one of the reasons that we selected Wilmington, number one, it's it's close to my partner. Um, but two, they're expecting an extra 75,000 people in that area by the year 2030, $25,000, uh, 25,000 people in the next couple of years. So that hedges the risk. You know, wherever you have more people than you have housing, then rents are going to go up, costs are going to go up, you know, your, your, um, your profit potential is going to go up. So you really want to look into how many people are going into an area when you're looking at an investment. The other is, what does economic development say about new jobs coming into an area? That's, that's a good question about the location. Every area typically has an economic development department in the government, and they're going to know before anybody else what businesses are coming in and what kind of jobs they're providing. Orange, Texas, for example, we invested in an apartment over there, Sunset Grove, 150 units, and we learned from economic development that Chevron was coming in and they were going to put in the largest petrochemical facility in the entire United States and bring in an extra 15,000 people and create an extra 8,000 uh, 8, direct jobs. And so we looked at it and said, they couldn't possibly build fast enough to accommodate the demand they're about to have with all the people they're bringing into this area. So those are some of the things you wanna ask is, is uh, you know, what does economic development say? What are the new jobs coming in? The other is what are the absorption rates? I think I kind of touched on this, but if you're, for example, doing a ground up development, and you're bringing in 200 new units, you want to make sure that your absorption rates are higher than 200 units. So if it says that only 20 units per year can be absorbed in this market, you, you really don't want to be doing a ground-up development where you can only 
rent 20 units per year. So you want to look at the absorption rates, especially for more speculative deals like development and arbitrage. And then what industry is driving the economy? So the biggest thing is you want to look for a diversification of industry. You want to avoid the one hit wonders like, you know, for example, the shale oil boom, where I knew people that were going into the Dakotas and building housing there. And then all of a sudden the government put a cap on it and said, no, we're not going to do any of this fracking anymore. And so people ended up holding the bag on, you know, 300 units that nobody's even living there anymore because there's no economy there. Like the, it was just one, it was just a one hit wonder. There was just one thing that was driving all the people going there. So you want to avoid that. You want stabilization of an economy. So typically things that don't really go away, unfortunately, government by my you know, political philosophy. I'd like to see government smaller, not bigger, but government never really goes away. So an area that's got a lot of government jobs is good from an apartment standpoint. Medical, medical provides great rental potential. So if you're next to medical facilities, you got a lot of nurses and uh, and the people that service that industry that, that typically make an area thrive. And then education. Uh, you also want to look for diversification of industry, your tertiary industry, if you're going to be in the affordable rent area, you want to make sure that there's people working in the local, you know, they got a good bit of local restaurants and malls and, and service industry type people. So that's that's kind of what you're looking for when you're asking location questions. I didn't put it on here, but this is one of the most important is you want to make sure that the sponsor is within a half day's distance of getting to the property and that they're going to check on it at least twice a month. You don't want to be invested with a sponsor who isn't going to put personal eyeballs on the property because when the cat's away the mice play and even if you've got a great property manager you still need ownership somebody who owns it on that physical site on that location uh, looking at the property constantly and keeping up with it so that's it guys That was uh, 13 questions there that's what our most sophisticated investors ask if you're interested in uh, learning more, kind of taking a deep dive. That was just kind of a, a crash course. But if you're interested in learning more, you know, if you're interested in investing and, and vetting us, you can go to serviocapital.com. You can book an appointment with myself and Bress, our equity, our managing director of equity. And you can look at some of the projects that we have available to invest there. Thank you for watching Real Estate Investor Secrets Podcast. Make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss a valuable episode. And you can also check out the link in the show notes if you want to book an appointment to talk about real estate investing strategies and opportunities. Thanks a lot. Take care and God bless.